This is The Defrag, I'm Christopher Lawson. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has just released its sixth assessment report. The report assesses the impact of climate change across ecosystems, biodiversity and human communities and was authored by more than 270 scientists from 67 countries. The latest report paints a bleak picture for our changing climate and our response to these changes. So so this is actually the sixth cycle of the IPCC. It's a, a sixth assessment cycle. And within each cycle, there's multiple reports. I'm Professor Mark Howden. I'm the director of the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. I'm also a vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I've worked on climate risk, climate variability, climate change for about a bit over 30 years. And so I've worked across most sectors and across most different aspects of climate change. In this particular cycle, um, there was three special reports. There was one on achievement of 1.5 degrees. Uh, There was one on land uh, and climate change, and there was one on oceans and climate change. So there were special reports. So this report particularly focuses on what are the historical impacts of climate change, such as, you know, the warming that we've seen and the coral bleaching and what might happen in the future. And then what might we do about it? How do we adapt to those changes? It's obviously, it's a massive report. There's like 3,675 pages, I think, in the full in, in the full report. Um, so, you know, we're obviously not going to dive into into all of the details. Uh, but can you give me like a couple of the top level findings, uh, you know, from this report on how, you know, on, the, on that sort of like impact side of, of climate change? Yeah, like it's it's a, a really good question, and and um and it is extraordinary that you know just the the um the amount of information there, the three thousand six hundred pages, there's thirty four thousand scientific reports which are referenced, and the list goes on. So so it's a compilation of of a huge amount of information. So from all of that, a few key messages for me are that um, climate change is already here, um, and it's already having major impacts across the globe, and those impacts are every continent and every ocean and every sector of our society. So whether it's um, the industry sectors like agriculture or transport or biodiversity and the natural resource um, systems. And most of those impacts are negative, but not exclusively. So if you go to some parts of, say, the Northern Hemisphere, um, Siberia, Scandinavia, um, which which are actually pretty cold places, a bit of warming actually helps in various ways. But for most of the globe, um, the combination of changes in climate and changes in sea level are actually quite threatening processes. And and so those impacts are negative. And unfortunately, they're not evenly distributed. And so a lot of those impacts fall disproportionately on low-income people um, and disadvantaged people. And uh, and so, so they're getting the raw end of the deal, and they're also often the least able to adjust to adapt to those changes. Why? Why is that? Why, uh, you know, why are sort of developing nations more affected? Is it just because they don't have the resources to make changes? It's a combination of multiple things in most cases, and it's all you know, very different in different circumstances. But but often um, there's there's a lack of resources, of financial resources of their own, um, and then at the moment the international flows of financial resources for adaptation are actually pretty small. Um, only four to eight percent of the international climate finance actually goes to adaptation. 
most of the rest goes to um, emission reduction. Um, and and so it's not operating in the interests of those local people who particularly are interested in the adaptation side of things. Uh, there's the financial aspect. Um, often there's other limiting resources, which might be technical um, capability of different types. Um, they've often got weak uh, institutions and weak governance arrangements. So the organisations and the way in which they're organised and how they, um, they can act and, and respond is actually often constrained. And so, and then there's sometimes, uh, you know, social and cultural and other barriers to action as well. We've seen a lot of, you know, particularly this week, there's a lot of thoughts, obviously, you know, in terms of like flooding, et cetera, in Queensland. We've seen the huge bushfires in Victoria a couple of years ago. Um, and the report does, you know, mention the, the sort of increases in these extreme weather events. Um, you know, and we always hear about there being more of this, but are we actually seeing, you know, more? of these events, like in, in the history of these reports, are we tracking more of these events occurring? Well, there's uh, because extreme events only happen every now and again, um, it's, it's difficult to be definitive about various aspects of it. But, but what we're seeing across the globe is, um, yes, there do appear to be more extreme events, um, that they are increasing in severity and the consequences of those are increasing. So we're seeing, you know, more um, insurance events. So the, um, you know, the total insurance bill seems to be going up quite a lot um, and the number of insured climatic-related events is going up as well. <clears throat> so um, so I think I think it's probably fair to say that our, our risks associated with, with extreme events are going up. And, and just to pick on one of those, when we look at something like uh, tropical cyclones, um, we what we see across the globe is that as a proportion of the total of cyclones, we're seeing more of the category three, four, and five cyclones, the really bad ones. And, and also within each of those categories, the average wind speed is going up. So, it, you know, on average, a category three is, is getting worse and a category four is getting worse. And, and, and that's because our, our oceans are heating up and, and oceans basically provide the energy for cyclones to work. And, and so the worry about cyclones is that essentially the damage function associated with cyclones is the cube of wind speed. So your damage function is proportional to wind speed times wind speed times wind speed. So small increases in wind speed or moving from one category to the next are actually often associated with huge increases in the damage bill. I, I guess that's one of the one of the things in general with climate climate change research, right? Like we're often talking about very small numbers, but the impact of those those very small changes it can be immense. Oh, indeed. So one of the, the challenges I think with climate change is is people talk about the Paris Agreement, you know, one point five degrees, um, or it might be two degrees or something like that, uh, and and people don't really have a context for what one point five degrees means. So when we talk about 1.5 degrees, you know, that's that's actually almost a third of an ice age. Um, we're already, the last few years, been around about 1.24 degrees above pre-industrial. So that's like a quarter of an ice age worth of temperature change we've already made. And so, so sometimes those numbers that sound small um, actually matter a really big amount. So the impact of climate change will disproportionately hit developing nations. And we're seeing climate change play out in extreme weather events. This is inherently a problem caused by us. But what impact could this have on biodiversity? That's coming up in a moment. 
if you're enjoying this episode of The Defrag and you want to support the work that we're doing, head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a Defrag member. You can get an ad-free version of the podcast, a sticker pack, a regular newsletter and discounts to our merch. Plus, there's a number of other perks depending on your membership level. Becoming a member is really the best way to support the show. It empowers us to produce independent journalism and gives you the best of the podcast without all the noise. So head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a member today. Our climate is in serious trouble, and the IPCC report released this week should serve as a warning of what is happening and what could happen if nothing changes. The Paris Agreement in 2015 aimed to restrict climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius, but as Mark says, we're on track to exceed that 1.5 degree target. Yeah, well, well, in in terms of temperature, essentially, you know, we're, we're pretty much almost guaranteed at this point to, to at least hit 1.5 and perhaps exceed it. Um, uh, the the uh, agreements for emission reduction that people agreed to at, at the Glasgow meeting, which are an update of those at the Paris meeting, uh, would, depending on how you calculate them, take us between 1.8 and a bit over 3 degrees um, above pre-industrial. So, so those commitments that governments have made um, simply aren't enough to keep us down to between one and a half and two degrees. And the problem there is that um, even though countries have made commitments, uh, they're not necessarily meeting those commitments. And so, um, so you know, I think we're actually in, uh, you know, pretty problematic situation. I think we're we're likely to to um, see quite substantial temperature increases. And if we if we don't abate, you know, if you don't reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, we could well go um, up to three or four or more degrees um, uh, by the end of the century. And um, and so, you know, and those changes are huge. The other concern highlighted in the report is the risk to biodiversity. If temperatures keep rising, we could see some of our much loved creatures become extinct. And this report clearly paints out that picture of increased risk of species extinction and you know, major changes in ecosystem function and composition uh, as a result of climate change. And, and again, uh, you know, those numbers are pretty scary. So we're talking about several percent of potential extinctions of those species which have been assessed uh, you know, at 1.5 degrees. And, and as, a, as the temperature goes up, there's uh, you know, more and more um, species are, are likely to sort of head towards extinction. And so, um, so there's every reason to be concerned about our uh, sort of natural heritage and uh, you know, the, you know, the world we leave to our, our um, you know, grandchildren. And, and these are already happening. So in Australia, we had the very dubious honour of, of being the first country to have the first clear mammalian extinction due to climate change. And that was a little rodent type animal up on the Torres Strait. Uh, you know, it used to live only on a very you know, flat, muddy sort of island. And that, that island's gone underwater. And so that animal's extinct. And so, um, and so you know, the, the, these, these extinctions are already starting to come come through, you know, as a distinct and attributable function of climate change. 
Uh, and of course, this builds on extinctions being driven by land use change and introduction of feral animals and other things. And so climate change is essentially a threat multiplier on top of our existing um, threats to biodiversity. I mean, obviously, you mentioned, uh, you know, Paris and some of the commitments that, that were made in Paris, um, you know, but we also discussed some of the, the challenges, you know, in particular for developing nations. Um, and, you know, there are some countries that are more reluctant to respond to the climate crisis. Given some of these challenges, do you think countries like Australia, like the US, Canada, the UK will need to overachieve if we expect to stem the impact of climate change? There's, there's an argument which is put up by developing countries um, that an, an equitable slice of emission reductions is actually inequitable. Now, if, if, so if you think of an equal slice, you know, Australia reducing emissions by, you know, 50 percent by 2030, you know, some people might say is that's, a, a, you know, an equal part of our, our global commitment. But various developing countries point out that, uh, you know, we've we've actually, you know, had our development trajectory on the back of, you know, huge amounts of greenhouse gas emissions in the past. And so, so we actually should be reducing our emissions much more. Um, and also because often our per capita emissions are much greater than those in the developing world. And so we should reduce proportionately our emissions much more. And, and so... You know, there's no, in a sense, there's no rights and wrongs here, but there's very different arguments which can be, you know, strongly rationalised about whether we should have an equal slice or whether we should have an unequal slice of emission reductions. But one of the things that I'd point out here is that just because, you know, countries like Australia or the US have actually gone through a a fossil fuel-driven um, development or supported development path doesn't mean that developing countries now have to go through exactly the same path. They can actually go through a development path which is much cleaner and smarter and greener than the one we did because we actually have a whole range of technologies um, and often very cheap technologies which they can implement rather than going down the same dirty path that we did. So it comes back to giving them better options than the ones we had. And I think broadly speaking, we can give them better options. You know, we. We can roll out very robust, reliable and cheap um, solar and, and wind-powered um, electricity across the globe, for example. Also making news today... The Starlink terminals that Elon Musk promised to deliver to Ukraine have arrived, according to a tweet from Ukraine's Vice Prime Minister. SpaceX sent the terminals after the Vice Prime Minister posted a tweet asking Elon to help keep Ukraine online. One user has already posted a speed test showing solid download speeds of 136 megabits per second. It's not currently clear who will get access to the terminals or how they will be distributed. Sid Meier, creator of the popular game Civilization, has criticised game developers monetizing their games with microtransactions and NFTs. Speaking with the BBC, Meyer said the real opportunity is keeping our focus on gameplay. He went on to say that developers might forget about making great games if they spend too much time thinking about monetizing those games. Several developers have faced major backlash from angry fans after trying to bring NFTs into popular gaming franchises. 
and Russia has been banned from exhibiting at the Mobile World Congress. The event kicked off in Barcelona this week, and there had been confusion as to whether Russia would be allowed to participate and exhibit at the event. However, GSMA, the organisation running the Mobile World Congress, condemned the invasion of Ukraine and said there would be no Russian pavilion. Mobile World Congress is a major technology event and usually sees a bunch of new announcements from large manufacturers. Frag is a production of Lawson Media. The show today was produced and hosted by me, Christopher Lawson. It's great to see so many people are enjoying the show, and I'd love to hear from more of you. If you'd love to be part of the Defrag community, then I encourage you to join our Discord. It's completely free, and you can find the link in the episode show notes or at our website, thedefrag.com. That's all for today. I'll be back tomorrow.